0: Thanks for making the effort to be back here tonight, and uh, I'm appreciative of the time that we have together. Tonight I want to talk about something that uh, may be review for a lot of us, but regardless, it's uh, important that we look at the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and what the Bible teaches us about, uh, about the marriage relationship. It is very important, and it's very important that we understand uh, what uh, God's uh, instructions are about the marriage relationship. Let's look quickly at uh, then at the Lord's plan for marriage. And that is that uh, one man should be married to one woman, and that arrangement should be for life. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, beginning of verse 21, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, after God makes Eve uh, for Adam, notice what it says And from the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so there is the idea when you marry that you're to leave father and mother, you're to cleave to your wife, and you would be one flesh. This uh, representing, I believe, the sexual relationship. The marriage bond here is that you are to leave and you are to cleave. And Jesus, in the passage that Joseph just read for us, said that this arrangement is to... People enter marriage with the idea that they won't be in that marriage for long, and they, they make arrangements for what will happen after they're out of that marriage, and the prenuptial agreements, and so forth. Because people come and go out of marriage, and uh, you you have one wife, and and, uh, and when you're tired of that, you find another wife. Um, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 6: "What therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man put asunder." So. God joins us together when we're married, and God expects that arrangement to be permanent. expects it to be for life. And so I want to put up on the screen a diagram that we're going to go to multiple times in our lesson tonight that shows the marriage arrangement, helps us to visualize it a little bit, because we're going to have to look at a lot of different scenarios uh, that, that are called out in the Scriptures and examine what God says about those scenarios and so we have a man and we have a woman, they meet each other, Uh, she thinks he's cute, he he thinks she's pretty, and they play a lot of putt-putt golf and bowl and stuff and they decide they're going to get married. All right, so they get married. Well, God is in the equation in this. God's in the equation and God, we're going to see here, he binds the man and the woman together. All right, so they're married. That's something that man can decide to do. But God then, when they get married, he binds them together. We see this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. We see from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, that when you get married... There's something other than just the marriage arrangement going on here. You're also being bound by the law. And that is a permanent thing, as we noted, that it's meant to be for life as long as her husband lives. So when a woman marries a man, there she's bound by the law as long as he lives. But after he dies, she's no longer bound to him. And she could be married to whomever she will. It says only in the Lord. And so we can go back to our chart, our arrangement here. The man and the woman get married. Um, They're bound by God. Unfortunately, the husband passes away. Now you can't be married to somebody who is dead. So that marriage is obviously gone. And God releases them, her from the, the being bound to her husband. Now, some other man comes along and they decide that they will be married. And God will then bind them together. And that marriage is intended to be permanent uh, as long as uh, they they both shall live. All right, so God's plan, we see from the scriptures, is one man, one woman for life. We also need to understand another biblical principle in that God hates divorce. You know, divorce is looked on as something that's uh, just every day in our society today, maybe even desirable in our society It wasn't that way a generation or two ago. Uh, Back in the the 50s and 60s even, it was a shameful thing uh, to be divorced. It was something that society looked down on. But it's not anymore. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord God hates divorce. For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. God hates divorce. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Wherefore, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. We can't go in, we shouldn't go in and just willy nilly put asunder our wives or our husbands. God hates divorce. He expects this arrangement to be permanent. In Matthew chapter 7, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2 beginning, Matthew 7, beginning verse 2 For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth, but if her husband is dead, Uh, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. This looks a lot like the passage we looked at in in 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? The idea that when you're married, you're bound by the law to your husband as long as he lives. Romans 7, verses 2 and 3. She's bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives... While her, while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she will be called an adulteress. It's bound by the law to that husband. But while, if while that husband lives, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. Now that's an interesting use of words. Because what's adultery? Adultery is intercourse between someone who's married and another person. But wait a minute. She wasn't married anymore. If her husband lives, she's being married to another. How could she still be an adulteress? Well, she's still an adulteress because she's still bound by the law to the first husband. She's committing adultery to the first husband. So back to our, our diagram. This woman and man meet and marry. God binds them. Now she meets another man, and she puts away this, uh, this first man. She divorces him, and she marries herself to this other man. She's married to him. Romans chapter 7 Says there that she was married to him while she's married to another while her husband lives. So she's married, but God doesn't recognize that marriage because she's still bound to her first husband. And so when she does that, Romans 7 says she's an adulteress. She commits adultery. And so God hates divorce. He expects our marriages to be permanent. And we need not let our society influence us in this area and not let our society begin to convince us that divorce isn't a big deal. It isn't a big deal. God hates it. God expects our marriages to be lifelong. Jesus reiterates God's law and is very clear for the husband, for instance. Let's start with the husband. In Mark chapter 10, verse 11, here's what he says. He said to them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. Whoever marry, puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery to her. So here on this side, the man meets a woman. They decide that they want to get married. He divorces this woman, marries another. That, woman, that man is called an adulteress. He commits adultery against his first wife. For the wife, the law is very clear as well. In Mark chapter 10, verse 12, if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she commits adultery. Same for the woman. She meets another man. She marries him. She commits adultery. All right? Very clear. Now, for the third party, what about the other party, the guy or the woman who comes into that arrangement? Well, it's very clear in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. In Luke 16, verse 18, "...whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery." Here's the third party. Whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery. But look at this, whoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. And so that guy that, or that woman who comes into this arrangement and he marries the woman who's put away or the husband who's put away, those are both adulterous relationships, and they are not sanctioned by God because the, first, the man and the woman are still bound by that first arrangement that they made. They're bound by that law as long as the husband or wife lives. But there is one exception to the instructions that God has given uh, about marriage, and that is the exception for adultery. First, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. This looks very similar to what we read in Mark chapter 10. If you take out the exception, whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. <clears throat> uh, actually, Luke that's Luke 16 verse 18. Looks very, very, very similar wording, but there is an exception here listed in Matthew chapter 19 verse 9. And that is for fornication. For the cause of fornication, we can sever that marriage relationship and we can, and God doesn't hold that person bound and you can be married to another. Back to our diagram. So we have man and wife. They're married. They're bound by, to God. But the woman is guilty of fornication. She commits fornication. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9 says that the man can put away his wife, sever that marriage relationship because of her sin. God then will release that man from the, being bound to the woman. He can marry again. And God will then bind the two together. But God still holds that woman accountable. He holds her under that bond because notice what it said there in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, whoever marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. So she's still bound by God to that first marriage so that if this man were to marry the woman again, that would be adultery. Does that make sense? Do you see how that works on the chart? So God's law is clear. Matthew 5, verse 32 says something very similar. Matthew 5, 32, but I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever marrieth her shall marry her, that is divorced, committeth adultery. Take out that exception there, saving for the cause of fornication. That looks like the other passages that we've noted. That a man's bound to his wife as long as they live. And if a divorce occurs, there is adultery involved in that. Saving for the cause of fornication. There's your exception. All right. So we have this: if an innocent, if the innocent, uh, if fornication is a cause for divorce, the innocent party may remarry without committing adultery. The put away party may not remarry without committing adultery. That's what Matthew 19 verse 9 says, and Matthew chapter 5 verse 32. And the guilty party has no right to remarry. The innocent party. Uh, Even if they are put away without the cause of fornication, cannot remarry without committing adultery. Let's go back and look at this. Take this clause out. Whosoever shall put away his wife causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. If I'm a divorced person and someone marries me, if someone has put me away, if my wife were to put me away, I couldn't remarry, even if I was innocent in that. That's what God's law says, back to the diagram, because that, the, the God is still holding me uh, bound to my first wife. And so we have the order that must occur. A person is married. One is then guilty of fornication the put, the divorce, and is divorced for this cause. The innocent party may remarry. The guilty party may not. We have to make sure that it is in this order, that the divorce occurs for this reason. Jesus says we can't divorce without a cause of fornication and be right with God. And so I can't be married, decide that I'm tired of my wife burning the biscuits. I've had it up to here with the burned biscuits. I can't take another day of it. And I put her away. And then later, she remarries. And I say, well, there's my justification. I'm going to go get remarried myself. That wasn't the cause of the divorce. The cause has to be for fornication, and that is the only exception, the only reason that God allows divorce. God's plan is one man, one woman for life. God hates divorce. God's very clear. The law is the same for the man, the woman, or the third party. If you're divorced, you cannot remarry. There's only one exception. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time tonight looking at some objections because there are a lot of objections to this clear law about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. You know, I've mentioned this before, but it is very clear that it's not hard to submit to God's instructions when they're what we want to do anyways. It's hard to submit to God's instructions when they violate what I would like to do. It's not hard for my kids to obey me. When I say, kids, go to the refrigerator and get out an ice cream sandwich and eat it. I don't get a lot of funny looks. I don't get a lot of moans. They'll go to the refrigerator and get the ice cream sandwich. But when I say, kids, go to your room and clean it up, then I'm tempted or likely to get some looks and maybe some moans that I shouldn't get, but maybe I will because it's harder to submit when it's something that you don't want to do. And it is that way for adults and God's instructions. It's easy for me to do things that don't require me to change or don't go against what I want. But When we start to talk about things that are uncomfortable that might cause us to have to make a change, that's when it's hard. It's no different in the area of marriage, divorce, or remarriage. And so someone would say, you know, you're saying that marriage is, is intended to be for life, but God just wants me to be happy. And you don't understand what it's like to live with that woman. Or you don't understand what it's like to live with that man. You walk a mile in my shoes and you might change your, your attitude. After all, God wants me to be happy. And God wouldn't want me to stay in a marriage that's not happy. And then the one you hear often is, well, it's for the kids. We don't want the kids to have to live with mom and dad fighting all the time. It would be better if we just divorce and we split the time up between the kids God wants us to be happy, and this is the way we're going to be happy. Well, I do believe God wants us to be happy, but I believe He has instructions for us on how to be happy. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. God wants us to be happy, but I can't just make up my own rules. I can't decide that. It's not in me to direct my own steps to obtain that happiness. I must submit to God's instructions. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. People will try and justify and rationalize away any of God's instructions that they don't like, and especially the instructions around marriage, divorce, and remarriage. God wants you to be happy, but we can't decide what, how we're going to live our lives in order to obtain that. We have to submit to His will. Someone else might say, You know what? <coughs> I agree with what you're saying, that God does not want us to divorce for any cause, just for any cause, and He doesn't want us to remarry. But you know what? The sin is in marrying, not staying married. And so, the man in the chart that that meets another woman and they decide that they want to get married, and so he divorces his first wife and marries the other, and God says that's adultery. The real thing there is, though, when they got married, when they walked down the aisle, that was adultery, that was the sin. But now that they're married, well, that's done, and they can stay in that marriage, and it's not sinful anymore. That is not what the Bible says about the marriage relationship. If it's an unlawful marriage, if it's unlawful to enter the marriage, it's unlawful to stay in the marriage. And this simple fact is what cost John the Baptist his head. If you're going along with the reading of the calendar that that David worked up for us, and that's on our website. We read Mark chapter 6 this week. In Mark chapter 6, Herod hears about Jesus, and his conscience starts to bother him. In Mark chapter 6, beginning of verse 14, And King Herod heard of him, for his name was spread abroad. And he said, That John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said it is Elias, and others said that it is a prophet or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard of it, he said, it is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. John didn't tell Herod, Herod, you messed up when you walked down the aisle and said, I do. That was sin. You need to repent of that, and everything's fine. Nobody said is it, it's wrong for you to be in this marriage relationship with Herodias. It is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. Why? Because she was still bound to her brother. In that chart we said, God still had her bound to her first husband. And, and, uh, and so it was wrong for him to have his wife. The sin is not in simply be getting married. The sin is in staying married if it's not a lawful relationship, not a lawful marriage. Another objection that you'll hear is that the non-Christian is not amenable to God's laws for marriage. In other words, we live in a society where marriages come and go, and you sort of change marriages like you change socks, and you hop into one and hop into another, and people are doing that out in the world but they're not amenable to God's laws. And, in other words, you could be married and divorced, married divorced 20, 30 times, and when you come become a Christian, then you just need to stay married to the one you're married to. That God's laws don't apply to you before you become a Christian, but once you become a Christian, now you need to stay married to the one that you're married to. Well, that simply is not the case. If God's laws are not amenable to the non-Christian, then the non christians is not, not capable of sinning, is he? Sin is a transgression of the law. God's instructions have to be amenable to both the Christian and the non-Christian. And if just some of God's instructions are amenable to the non-Christian, and some of them aren't, how do we know which ones are and which ones aren't? But the fact of the matter is that God's instructions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage are applicable to the non-Christian. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Beginning of verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. There's a long list of things that are off limits. And notice this. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. These people, before they became Christians, were guilty of all of these sins. They had been homosexuals. They had been idolaters. They were amenable to God's law. And notice they had also been adulterers. They had been in those unlawful relationships. They were amenable to God's law before they became married. And so being baptized doesn't just sort of wipe away all those old marriages and now you're free to stay with the one you're with. You're amenable to God's laws before you get married. And then, lastly tonight, our society is all messed up in the marriage and Divorce and remarriage categories, and families are in shambles. And families, sadly, have come and gone, and marriages have come and gone, and some might, one might have been married to two or three people before, and now they've settled down and they're with someone that they're committed to, and their marriage has resulted even in children. And they might have a house full of children now in this marriage that God is not pleased with because it is an adulterous arrangement because he has them bound to someone else other than the one that they're married to now. And we tell them the instructions that God says it's, it's unlawful to have that wife, and you need to get out of that relationship. The objection that we hear many times is surely God wouldn't want us to break up a family. And as, as heart-wrenching as that is, we have to say God does demand that. Would you turn with me in your Old Testament to Ezra chapter 9. In Ezra chapter 9, the children of Israel had been unfaithful to God. They had disregarded his instruction for them. In Ezra chapter 9, they come to Ezra and they tell him about what they've done. In Ezra chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Amorites or Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wife for the, wives for themselves and their, their sons so that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of these lands." Therefore, or indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of, my, of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God, uh, the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice." And at evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting, and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord God. And I said, and it goes on and mentions his prayer. The Israelites were instructed when they went into the land of of the promised land to not take wives of the people around them. They had violated God's instruction. They had taken wives that they weren't supposed to take. Ezra is distraught about this, and he's praying Now go to chapter 10, verse 1. Now while Ezra was praying and while he was confessing weeping and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of uh, my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage and do it. Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites, and all Israel, swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. And the rest, of, uh, and you'll see uh, verse 18. And among the sons of the priests who had taken pagan wives, the following were found of the sons of, and it goes on and gives a long list of people. Verse 19. They gave their promise that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, They presented a ram of the flock as their trespass offering. And the remainder of the chapter goes on and lists them by name of those who had done this. But look at verse 44. All of these had taken pagan wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. They had taken these wives. They had families, and they had children in these families. And yet they still were expected to get out of those relationships because they weren't lawful. God demands that we submit to his laws, and it may not be what we would think is what we would want to do. It might not even seem reasonable to us, but if God says it, we need to submit to it, that's what submission is all about. There are many more objections that we could raise, that people raise to God's clear instructions about the marriage relationship. And if you've got questions about those, you'd like to talk about those, please let me know. But God's instructions are clear. Again, it's the submitting part that is difficult for us when it means that we'd have to make a change. If you've got any questions about what we talked about tonight, please let me know. I hope that the things that we've talked about have been maybe just a reminder, maybe some new material, but um, it is important that we look at these instructions. I want to say one more thing before we conclude the message tonight, and that is that... I understand that these instructions are hard and difficult. God expects us to do difficult things many times. We need, to, we need to sympathize with those who may be in a relationship that's not. understand the difficulty of making a change, but God expects us to make changes, to align with what His will is for us, and may we all have the courage and the strength and the resolve to do that when necessary, whatever the, the change might be in our lives. Are there changes in your lives that need to be made? If there are, would you make those changes? Would you make them now before it's too late? If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.